Ladies and gentlemen, today is a, mo a momentous, a monumental, an intergalactic occasion. You know, I open every episode by saying, are you thick, mean, lean, and swole? And the answer usually for our listeners is probably no. And then I inform you. I give you a discount code, a way out, an escape, a solution, a cure. OpenGuardCast25 is a discount code you can use for election performance. But this man who came on our show today does not need that because it is Alex Sterner, certified <laughs> certified and conditioning specialist from Electrum Performance, the very people we give the discount code that you can get the, the antidote to your weak arms and flabby legs. Ladies and gentlemen, Alex Sterner joins us today for a Q&A episode. Alex, how are you? Man, I'm doing great. That 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 intro really fired me up. You're like the next Bruce Buffer. Dude, I absolutely <laughs> like I literally every time Danny's like, hey, I got a guest. I start thinking of my next intro because I don't like to have the same one. I like to have some crazy build up thing to it. And I mean, electron performance makes me excited. So why shouldn't everybody else get excited about it? Man, that's fantastic. <laughs> Man, dude. Alex Turner joins us once again. Uh, I'm Jake Watson. I'm joined by Danny O'Donnell, obviously. And uh, we have some. I mean, Danny, like I said, Danny's got a crazy uh, vision. He's got a bigger brain than I. So he's got the first question. You guys, we, we went on, um, and I just want to have a disclaimer. I went on my Instagram and said, hey, guys, we're having a world-renowned certified strength conditioning specialist. Uh, leads the number one jiu-jitsu team in the world. Coming on our podcast once again. Do you have a question you want to hear from him? And, uh, well, they didn't take the exact route I thought they were going to with an important <laughs> question. But Danny has one. So Danny O'Donnell, ladies and gentlemen. So like Jake mentioned, this is going to be like a Q&A format type episode. But before we get into the questions that we got from some of the listeners, I just wanted to check in with Alex because Electrum recently opened up like a physical facility and just wanted to get your thoughts on like how that's going and everything that you're dealing with with the coronavirus and stuff like that. Yeah, so, uh, you know, we knew that this would be, uh, you know, it would come with a, a bunch of surprises and speed bumps, but we never would have guessed that in the first year, you know, we're already going through our second shutdown. Um, you know, as, as you guys know, but some of the listeners may not know, we're, we're in California. Um, so we, uh, about halfway through July, uh, were instructed to shut down again. And for our in-person services, we, uh, you know, we did so right away. Um, it's kind of heartbreaking to turn clients away. Um, and especially with so many other businesses and open defiance, but, um, you know, we, we do try to focus on while the name is election performance and we do focus on, you know, performing better and better, um, health and safety is a priority as well. And, uh, you know, the last thing we'd want to do is contribute to that. So we're, we're laying low for the time being, uh, really focusing on producing more content and, uh, and educational material, uh, working on our website that, uh, you know, our app as, uh, you know, Jake gave that epic intro in the beginning. Um, so, yeah, just trying to keep it worthy of such a, an epic introduction. You know, dude, it, it's just how electron performance makes me feel. Right? I don't I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to, uh, you know, elaborate too hard and get too romantic with it. But if I had a wife, right, that did as much for my health and well-being as the electron performance app does then I might, every time she comes in the room from work, I might do the same thing. So don't, don't mention it, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, man, it's, yeah, uh, I would definitely, Oh, go ahead. I dude. was just going to say that Danny and I are so excited to get out there and hopefully do a workout with you and, and do some promotional stuff. But 
I like like you said, the shutdown over there is kind of similar to the shutdown over here, where we're just getting shut down over and over. And uh, I definitely hope that it gets better before it gets worse. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, we're just trying to roll with the punches as best we can. We've got we've got a pretty multifaceted business as it is. Like I mentioned, we've got a lot of stuff on our website, on our app. So there's definitely, you know, it's not like when we close down to in-person members that we're sitting here twiddling our thumbs. Like, quite frankly, I almost feel like we have more work that we've been doing since we closed down to in-person, uh, in-person clients. Um, but it's just a shame. You know, that's the, that's the part of our job that we really have a passion for. I, you know, I like working with clients in person. I like educating people. Um, and it's not that we can't do that through these mediums, um, but like if possible, man, I'd love to sit, to sit down with you guys in person. You know, it's, it's great talking to you guys over this format. Um, but there's something about that, that in-person feel, you know, especially when it comes down to a business relation that, uh, you know, that we really, that we really enjoy. And it's, it's just kind of a shame that we, you know, we haven't been able to consistently provide that service. Yeah. So hopefully as soon as everything's back to normal and the facility opens back up, me and Jay can stop by. But I would definitely encourage everyone to go to Electrum's Instagram page and check out some of the photos of the facility because it's absolutely beautiful. It has like every piece of equipment a jiu-jitsu person or any person training in strength and conditioning could ever want. Yeah, man. I can't wait to show it to you guys. Awesome. Well, there's also like – I mean – there's so much that goes into like the gyms not being open and, you know, working on at home. I, I will let you know. Uh, I remember I messaged Alex. I was like, hey, man, yeah, I think I have to start working out in the morning at home. Uh, Arizona gets comically hot. Uh, it's actually ridiculous sometimes. It's not like, you know, how people from the north and uh, northern United States say about Arizona. We're like, oh, dude, it's got to be like, you know, Satan's domain there. But it's not. It's it's. It's just hot. But in the garage in the afternoon, it is very hot. Like it got to like 124 degrees in my garage. And I was just like, whatever, I'm going to go do an electrician performance workout. I'm excited. And I almost passed out. So that was not <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was not a good idea. And then I trained that night because I'm like, whatever, dude, I'll just recover. I'm 22. But dehydration does not discriminate uh, in age. So you have to hydrate. Otherwise, you'll die. That's true, man. So yeah, I didn't hydrate at all that day. I drank like maybe a half a gallon of water and I, and I just almost passed out three consecutive times in a day. And then I didn't work out the rest of the week because my hamstrings, uh, were really, really sore. I did like a extra heavy set of RDLs and I was like proud of myself. Turns out I'm an idiot, (laughs) but, uh, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, that was, it was scary. And I, uh, I messaged Alex and he was like, yeah, don't do that. (laughs) Why would you do that? Well, yeah, man. I mean, it's it can get warm here, but nothing, man. 120 degrees is just is nuts. And then even even uh, you know hydration status and how that can affect recovery, like like you observed. You know, I'm sure it would have been a lot cooler to like read about it than experience it. But yeah, uh, <laughs> that can that can leave you rocked for a while, even once you've then rehydrated. You know, if you if you had an intense training session when you're uh, significantly dehydrated, yeah, that can have some lasting effects. So. Oh, it sucked, dude. It was the worst. I felt like like my body was hungover. That's what it felt like. Like for a whole week, that's what it felt like. It was awful. Yep. But now let's move on. So Q and A from our our loving, lovely uh, fan base. Here's the. F- I'm gonna take away the first one. All right. And this is a very important question. This has been. This is pressing, to, to say the least. It's a pun. You'll hear it in a sec. Um. 
from Andrew Racine underscore BJJ on Instagram. He says, how much does Kynan Dwarch bench? Oh, man. Oh, man. We're really getting into the nitty gritty here. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, man, Kynan's one of those guys. Um, he's got some some freakish physical attributes um, and things just come very quickly to him. You know, he's very coordinated. Um, he's very naturally strong. Um, and I feel like every time uh, I work with Kainan, it's it, man, he's still like he's still a growing boy. You know, he's young. Um, so uh, so that's an ever evolving question. What I will say is the numbers that he put up with me. Um, he's now smoking now that he's down in Brazil. Uh, you know, it, it's been a few months since I've seen him. I was you know, I was writing some programs for him, but he's got a guy he works with down there. Um, and man, he's getting stronger all the time. I'd say uh, right now he's probably right around three hundred pounds. Oh my gosh, that's a heavy bench. I think the most I've ever benched is two twenty-five. Okay, that's, that's not bad though. I but three hundred? My gosh, that's like more than three plates, right? Or no, is that three plates? Uh, no, a little three bit plates less. Yeah. Okay, I was about to say, dear gosh. That is he is, doing that for reps, or is that like his one rep max? I, I, if I had to guess around his one RM, it'd be around 300 pounds, yeah, from what I've seen from him training currently. There's hope. There's hope. The get, uh, Operation uh, Get Stronger Than Kynan is a go <laughs> as of right now. <laughs> Would you say that – okay, here's a follow-up question. Do you think that um, – to what degree is the length of your arm does – that, does that make benching and like squatting, the length of your appendage – uh, to what degree does the length of your appendage make a lift like that um, harder? Man, I mean, it's th that's a massive factor. So I think I think we've got a little bit of a of a bias being, um, you know, all, all three of us being jujitsu practitioners, where like we we compete in a sport where like regardless of your body type, you're gonna find a style that fits. You're gonna find a way to make it work. Like we were talking about, you know, deep half earlier. Uh, you know, if if you're shaped like a bowling ball, you know, and you can stay compact very easily, something you'll, you'll just gravitate towards something like deep half. You don't have to, uh, you know, look like uh, Jake or his twin Keenan uh, necessarily to be uh, <laughs> to um, uh, to be successful. There's there's not this one body type uh, that. <laughs> Gross. Why would you say that? <laughs> um, it's just uh, certain similar traits, you know. Like I always have to. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not gonna complain about Keenan. This is not the episode. This is not the time nor the place. Don't act like that's the first time you've heard that, dude. I hear that all the time. It's like, okay, here's here's the curse of Jake Watson. I am Jake. Jake from State Farm. I am Watson, Dr. Watson from Sherlock Holmes, and I look like a prominent figure in the jiu-jitsu community. You know a kid at Nogi Pans came up behind me, and it, I can't even make this up. Pet, like something – I don't know what it was. It was something in his left hand, and a Sharpie in his right, and said, excuse me, Mr. Cornelius, can you please sign this for me? And I had I, – I couldn't bring myself to do it. I just was like – Oh man, I am not. I am not that guy. I am not Keenan Cornelius. I'm so sorry. He's like, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. I was like, you know what, man? I it's okay. I just never thought that was actually gonna happen. Oh yeah, man. I uh, I'm not gonna lie. I've, I've had some double takes between the two of you, where I see one of you at a tournament or something. I'm like, which, 
which one of the two you use that? <laughs> uh, to get back to that question, I, I think that you know when we're looking at something that's a much more objective uh, uh, sport, something like I don't know high jump or uh, the 100 meter dash or something like you know and uh, a lift in powerlifting like a bench press, there is uh, there there is an ideal set of levers in the body, and and you'll see that that body <laughs> really gravitate. Um, towards those events, right? You won't, um, and I think that, you know, for something like bench press, um, somebody with, you know, extremely long arms is probably going to struggle with that. You got more range of motion. Um, you don't have nearly as much leverage and especially at the highest level, I don't think it'll, it'll hold you back, you know, um, as a beginner or a more intermediate lifter. But if we're looking for like you know, really high end performance. Yeah. Something like your, your, uh, the length of those levers will, uh, will play a big role. Okay. Thank you. All right. So the next question was about isometric training. So do you incorporate isometric training into your training plans? And why do you think it's, if you do, why do you think it's important for jujitsu? Yeah. So, uh, I think we got into this a little bit last time. We didn't, we didn't dive into it too deep, but I think that um, an an isometric contraction is when you are uh, contracting a muscle, but it's maintaining a position. It's not, um, the muscle is not changing in length. And I think one of the fundamental, you know, you'll hear people throw the term mat strength around all the time. I think one of the biggest components of mat strength is your isometric strength. You'll have these guys that may not necessarily be able to, you know, we were just talking about bench press. They may not be able to bench a ton of weight. They might not be able to, uh, to squat a ton of weight and going through the, the eccentric and concentric portion of those lifts, they may not have any, you know, a level of strength that really wows you. But if you ask that same person to do, you know, one of the, one of the, uh, things that we do in our training very often is, uh, a pull-up hold. You just hold yourself at the top of the pull-up bar and you, you, you hang out there as long as you can. You compare a jujitsu competitor and their ability to do that with, an average person. And you'll generally see that they perform quite well there, especially if they're one of those individuals that feels particularly strong on the mat. So that's a huge emphasis in our training. Um, and we've actually even come up with an eight exercise battery, um, recently that we're collecting data on and trying to find certain things that are truly, um, indicative of, uh, uh, or, or predictive of ability level. Um, and one of those is a pull-up hold. You know, we're collecting data. We're compa- we're comparing, uh, you know, n- uh, non-practitioners to uh, hobbyist practitioners to uh, elite athletes. And since we have an interesting pool of all three of those groups, um, we're starting to see what sort of results stratify. And you could just look at what they do for a pull-up hold, and you can go, you know what? I have a feeling that guy might be elite at jujitsu if he trains. You know, because he exhibits those. Um, those physical attributes, isometric strength is super, super important in grappling. Yeah. And we were talking a little bit before the show, um, just kind of like this resonated with me a little bit. We're talking a little bit, you know, this quarantine and the time away from competing, you really have, I feel like it could force you to open up your game a little bit, but I feel like Danny has been doing the same thing and we've been really taking steps to open up our jujitsu and to understand the correlation between strength training and jujitsu and in my recent attempts at like expanding my brain uh, further than a baby, 
I <laughs> I have been really focusing on that isometric hold and like becoming immovable. Like you look at athletes like Kynan, who I mentioned before. I mean, I've never seen him get swept, like swept, swept, where he loses, like is knocked off balance and it's like a flash sweep. I've never seen that. It's always like a hard effort and they really have to work and then maybe they get it. Oh, they don't. You know what I mean? So he's really, really hard to move. He's very strong in that aspect. And I think that that is an incredible attribute to have, especially at the highest level in jiu-jitsu, because, I mean, you see a lot at low level, like, oh, it's a sweep, and then he gets his guard pass, and then armbar. Like, the better guy is so obviously better because his jiu-jitsu is better. But at the highest level, it's those differences in strength and conditioning, I feel like, nowadays, in today's jiu-jitsu culture, that, I mean, like, now I'm really starting to see it. I'm really starting to understand it within myself. Uh, totally. Um, and then, I mean, one thing that um – you were sort of getting close to that I should have mentioned. I mean, the best example of isometrics and how it transfers to, uh, to jujitsu is your grip. I mean, yeah. anytime we're utilizing our hands in jujitsu, it is almost always in an isometric fashion. And it's not about how hard you can squeeze for 10 seconds, right? I mean, a grip that you're only going to have for five or 10 seconds is usually not that useful unless you're purposefully transitioning. And then what is your hand doing as soon as it transitions? It's gripping again. Right. So if you've got a 10 minute fight, like like most of you guys do at Black Belt, the majority of those 10 minutes, your hand will be gripping something in some sort of isometric fashion. And I think that ignoring that or not making that a high priority in your training is ignoring a, a massive demand of the sport. And as I'm sure you felt, you get a couple rounds into a tournament, especially if you didn't warm up adequately or your nerves were getting the best of you and you're over gripping. Man, once those grips burn out, you you become pretty useful, uh, pretty useless, pretty quick. You know. Yeah, yeah. Lactic acid buildup is definitely something that takes your mind off of what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> oh yeah. All right. All right. So I guess it's it's my turn to ask another question. All right, here we go. Uh, <clears throat> useless question from and this is not this is not a good question, but I want you to answer it anyway. No underscore jitsu. Now let me just say this is a meme page says, who can beat Goku in a fight, and why is it Saitama? Now, Saitama, for those listening, is One Punch Man. These are two anime characters. Alex, you don't have to spend too much time on this. I'm just going to entertain this meme page because, quite frankly, they've been nice to me. So, <laughs> who would win don't in a fight? Don't spend too much time. How do I, I, mean, how do I spend I as much time as you need on it, I guess. I mean, do you know these two <laughs> characters? Let's break it down. I mean, first, let's, you know, <laughs> training regimen, right? You've got uh, you've got Saitama who does his uh, what is it? It's a hundred push-ups, a hundred squats, a um, hundred uh, lunges. He does a ten-kilometer run every single day, and he trained as he it's put it. Si- uh, it's sit-ups, hundred sit-ups, oh, sit-up. hundred push-ups, hundred squats, ten-kilometer run. And I call myself a strength. <laughs> My God. <laughs> so so, and he even said he trained till he went bald. You know that's dedication. You that's know. Fair, um, yeah. Versus versus Goku, who, uh, you know, he's got these this fancy technology where he turns it up to, what, 400 times gravity. Okay, dude, you know, flex your technology. You know, <laughs> quarantine, Goku wouldn't wouldn't do too hot. Saitama, on the other hand, he's got all he needs with his body. And he's got the quarantine workout down. So I would say due to versatility and everything, you know, his ability to train regardless of environment. Um, Goku needs all these fancy tools. I'd definitely side with Saitama. Okay, but let's look at diet. Let's look at weight class. Let's look at okay. transformations. Let's look at 
the, just the fact that Goku has the ability to ascend to a higher level. Let's look at the opponents that they both fought. I would say Saitama has not had to use two punches in a fight. That's one thing. True. Goku, True. his diet is insane. That dude is eating at least 20,000 calories a day, right? And he burns the calories so quickly. So do you think Goku would have to adjust his training regimen to match a fight with Saitama? That's a good point. So, so Saitama's got that. Uh, it, it's like it's like when a UFC fighter hasn't really made it to the championship rounds. You know, he he only throws. All of his fights are essentially Conor McGregor and Jose Aldo. You know, it's just that one punch, and then he's out of there. So, uh, it's a good question. You think you, you, so? You're saying Goku could drag him into deep water with his superior diet, conditioning, and uh, yes, uh, strength. Yeah. Yes, I do. Because Goku's fought people from different galaxies. Saitama's only fought people who are on his planet. I mean, he's fought some pretty wacky characters. I don't know how those people exist on his planet. Like, Earth does not seem like that kind of place where a gigantic 100-foot man exists. But it is still that planet. Goku has traveled to other galaxies. Also, Goku has instant transmission. Dude can just appear somewhere. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. I'm just saying. Well, I mean, you know, you're also, you're also getting into... Uh... Uh, it sounds like you're getting into the newer, uh, like what, what's that new uh, Dragon Ball Z, thing, the uh, the one where they're gods or whatever. No, I'm ta I'm talking about I'm talking about strictly I'm talking strictly Dragon Ball Z. We're not going into Super. We're not going into GT. In in Dragon Ball Z, when he came back, he beat Frieza, goes to another planet, learns instant transmission, planet Yardrat. Then he comes back with Master Roshi's glasses. He's like, check that out. I got his glasses. Right. So then Vegeta's like, no, Kakarot. And then he gets all upset and angry. You know what I mean? Goku's like, yo, flex. Saitama is over here literally like thinking about the bargain market as he's fighting his opponents. They're not high level. They're not. Is it is it that they're not high level or he's just such high level that he can just be distracted the whole time? It's a good point. It's a very good point. I don't know if this bit has gone on long enough. <laughs> 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 this is uh that was pretty fun but yeah hey uh no underscore jizzy thank you for your very fun question i'm definitely gonna post the clip of this on my instagram uh wow i just said instagram on my insta uh <laughs> not that that's, that's enough of the of the stupid questions on my end i don't know if i don't well not stupid sorry that that's rude the, enough of the questions that are not about actual uh, application to human life um <laughs> so i'll let danny take away this question i'm irresponsible <laughs> All right. Next question. Um, so since jujitsu is a sport that takes place in multiple planes, do you incorporate, do you put a big emphasis on incorporating movements that are multiplanar or like movements that are outside of the, I think it's the sagittal plane. Um, is that like the, the plane that like a squat or deadlift would be in? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's always important to have a well-rounded training plan. I think tra uh, training in, in multiple planes of motion is definitely important, right? If you're if you're if you're cross training for another sport, something like jujitsu that's so versatile, you have to encompass that. Um, something that I really like to uh, to focus on though is that specificity only goes so far, though, right? If we if we only wanted uh, it, to mimic jujitsu in the weight room well then we would probably just be doing jujitsu with chain mail on right just adding resistance to uh uh to what we're already doing we're trying to to mimic the muscular work 
not the muscular action. So yes, we are, we're, we're training in all three planes, right? But not everything that we, that we do is like, wow, you know, I like to do Kimuras. So everything that I want to do needs to be rotational strength. And uh, you can go too far with that. So every single day, you know, if a client walks through our door, if they're following something on the app, um, yeah, there's going to be exercises. Uh, there's going to be frontal plane exercises. There's going to be transverse plane, and there's going to be a good amount of stuff in the sagittal plane, but don't, uh, what I'm trying to get at is you shouldn't be so worried about that, that it needs to be at this magical ratio, or it needs to fully mimic the sport that you're doing. If you got, if you have a day that you do where you're doing mostly sagittal plane stuff, you're training pain free, you're getting stronger. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're checking the boxes that day. So yeah, we definitely cover it. Um, but we also don't want to, uh, you know, we don't want to go down that rabbit hole too, too far. Okay. That's actually, that's, you know, what's funny is I remember having a very long, uh, very long conversation about that with Danny. And uh, I'm really glad that you answered that in that fashion because it was pretty complete. I was like, okay, I don't have any, no further questions. Here, no follow-up. <laughs> yeah, no follow-up. No follow-up. No following glaze. Um, so here's a good one from Blue Belt underscore Breakdown. Are there functional patterns for grappling slash submission wrestling? So that's, uh, man, that's going to piggyback right off of where I was going. So I don't know if this person was doing this on purpose, um, but there is that brand functional patterns um, that, you know, they try to set themselves apart from the fitness community. They say that, you know, everything in strength and conditioning is destroying your body. One of their biggest arguments, you know, they, they tend to demonize sagittal plane movements um, because very few things in sport occur in the sagittal plane. And I think this comes back to that fundamental, um, that fundamental principle of our training where we're trying to mimic the muscular work, not the muscular action. Right. So we, you can totally experience transfer of a movement that you perform in the sagittal plane to uh, a movement that you do on the mat. That is a bit of a mix between a few different planes, right? Because very few motions on the mat. You, if you look at what a true sagittal plane movement is, I mean, man, if you take a part of a jujitsu match and you just play for two seconds, there's no way that you aren't looking at motions, you know, across a, a mix of all three, right? But if you're training those muscles and you're getting them to, uh, you know, to consistently outperform what they've done in the past, when you have that more open environment, um, there's still a lot that can be done. So I don't know if this person was getting at functional patterns, but I think they're an example. Um, you know, there's some things they do, that they do that are good, but I think that they take that specificity concept and they go way too far like you can't find anyone that goes further with it they they just go and they take sport specific movements and they just they they load them uh whether it's these super long cables that they do whether it's their you know jumping twisting kettlebell work it, it just goes too far they're trying to mimic the muscular actions in the sport or in the uh evolutionary principle that they're looking for be it um you know, gate or throwing, um, and they just too closely mimic it. Right. And let's look at other sports that are more developed. Let's look at baseball. Um, do baseball pitchers, uh, is, is the best way for them to perform strength and conditioning is to just throw heavier and heavier baseballs. No, there's a reason that we don't see that. that that's not particularly good. And it's taking specificity so far, you know, you'll see people sometimes boxing with dumbbells, 
that's not actually a good thing to do, right? You don't have the same type of uh, resistance profile. You've got the dumbbells that are weighted downward and you're punching largely horizontally. So the, the resistance profile doesn't quite make sense. Um, and if you look in the research and something like punching, oftentimes you'll see a, a, a double peak phenomena um, where uh, they're sort of relaxing towards the middle of the strike. Um, and you don't, you don't have a chance to do that with dumbbells. So just loading up super specific movements, um, you can definitely go too far. I, I saw a video on my Instagram explore recently, which was uh, somebody had a sled on turf um, and they had uh, a chain attached to uh, a belt that they were wearing and they're on the turf and they're doing weighted shrimps with like 180 <laughs> pounds on the sled. And and, you know, interesting, I, I get where they're coming from, but like, when are you ever rolling with somebody and you're just like, man, that dude had the strongest shrimp. <laughs> I felt he was unstoppable. would get him somewhere and he could shrimp 900 pounds and I only weigh 200 pounds. That, that's just not, we, we've gone too far down the rabbit hole at that point. Right. I mean, is the, is the, the barrier for entry for black belt worlds? <laughs> able to do a double body weight shrimp if somebody's incapable <laughs> of doing that, is that going to make them bad at jujitsu i don't think so right part of jujitsu is using leverage and making yourself as efficient as possible with that hip escape or shrimp movement as opposed to just being able to move what what's next like a, you know they they throw a truck in neutral and you just see some dude shrimping down <laughs> 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 throw a truck in neutral it's so Okay, so let me uh, ask you about the about the dumbbell thing. I see a lot of boxers nowadays have resistance bands around their back, and they're throwing punches with the resistance band. Is that a better way of offering resistance? Because the dumbbell, I get what you're saying. As you extend your arm, the weight is now going down, and you're relaxing so that you can carry through the motion. But when you have a resistance band, you're getting adequate resistance in the opposite direction that you're punching. Would that be more effective? All right, so we're really going to dive into this one. Um, so for punching power, um, a huge prerequisite, and this is something that is very overlooked, um, but it's your deceleration mechanics and the ability of like posterior cuff muscles to decelerate that, uh, that limb as it's being thrown forward. If you look at just loading a punch, particularly with a band, there is no deceleration going on. You are pushing all the way through. Now, I don't know how much experience um, you guys have with uh, with striking, but if you're ever, you know, if you're ever doing pads, uh, you know, hitting pads or you're sparring with somebody and you think you're about to connect with something and don't and you like hyperextend your elbow or like your shoulder feels weird because you're expecting to make contact and not have to decelerate. And then it's all of a sudden that object's not there and you're left to decelerate yourself, sometimes by way of just slamming a joint to its endpoint range of motion. It's yeah. not, uh, uh, again, that, that's another example. Now, can we throw some of that in? Sure, I, I train some UFC uh, and Bellator fighters and there are some band resisted things I do, but I don't go crazy with that because that's not really going to be the deciding factor. And, and it doesn't even closely mimic the mechanics of punching it's actually changing that person's mechanics and to bring it back to the example of that uh you know the baseball player with the you know with a weighted ball it, it, we're changing the mechanics of throwing that ball by adding weight right and and if you change the mechanics too too much then again why are we going down this rabbit hole for specificity 
So that, that would just be another example that I would bring back to where we're looking to mimic the muscular work, not necessarily the muscular action. And I know that seems pedantic. It seems like I'm really splitting hairs here, but I think it's up to a strength coach to be able to split those hairs. Sometimes we'll do some things that are pretty specific. Um, other times we're going to do things that are totally non-specific by nature because the muscular work that's occurring is very beneficial. Take a deadlift, right? I, de I do some variation of a deadlift with my jujitsu fighters. I do a variation with my MMA fighters. I do a variation with general, uh, you know, like lifestyle clients. And, you know, if you've got a baseball player or a basketball player, they're going to be doing a variation of a deadlift. Well, why are all these vastly different scenarios doing such a similar movement? And that's because the muscular action that occurs there, or sorry, the muscular work that occurs is going to provide a systemic benefit. And that person is going to be able to express strength in multiple contexts because they've improved at the deadlift, right? So we're, we're looking at specificity versus transfer, which also may look a bit pedantic again, but you want to make sure that what you're doing has a degree of specificity, but that specificity only matters if it transfers. So if we bring it back to what you were just talking about with the bands, is it specific to punching? Sure. I mean, if you, if you remove the band from it and you watched somebody do it in slow motion versus just shadow boxing, you might not be able to tell the difference. There is a level of specificity, but how much transfer is there? Well, with the band, there is no deceleration. And an important part of striking and striking in a controlled and consistent manner is being able to appropriately decelerate. So now we can say, while it's very specific, it doesn't have a high degree of transfer. And it's always important that when we're looking at specificity, that we're looking at that other thing. If I've got some guy that comes to me and goes, hey, I want to be a black belt world champion and check this out. I can hip escape the weight of that pickup truck over there. Okay, great. But that's not a deter. What is the transfer to that? You don't need to be able to shrimp 2000 plus pounds to succeed at jujitsu. So the transfer is just not there. Um, so uh, th that's a great question. And I think that especially on social media, and we've even, we've even uh, taken advantage of this in the past, you know, people are very apt to draw connections between two things. We had a, we had a successful series that we ran for a while on our Instagram that we called uh, the specificity series, where we showed two movements that are very specific, something that we do in the weight room that closely mimics what we're looking to do on the mat. And in certain areas, that's great to do. But we sort of got away from that because it was um, it was reinforcing this thought pattern that people think that everything that you do in the weight room, if you can't find an example of you uh, doing a military press, you know, if you're not if you're not like Andre the Giant and picking up your training partner and pressing him overhead, well, then I shouldn't be doing that in the in, in the weight room, and that's not entirely true, right? So we always want to we always want to weigh those two those two things, the specificity of it with the transferability. And you're giving me like crazy flashbacks to i actually i was actively participating in striking i actually wanted to be an mma fighter when i first took up jujitsu and i worked with a strength coach and he's a fantastic strength coach he works actually he's a, the main strength coach of uh, bellator light heavyweight and heavyweight champion ryan bader he actually what's funny is you work with miles jury correct yep okay miles jury trained at my gym oh wow yeah and he trained with my old strength coach jason caymans and uh, okay. he had me doing a lot of the and I, I don't think it was he had a lot to on his plate working with, you know, an entire fight team. And um, I was, you know, hey, I'm 
you know, 17-year-old purple belt uh, <laughs> yelled me too. <clears throat> and I was doing a lot of the same exercises that these MMA fighters were doing. And, I, and it's giving me like – like the knowledge pieces are now clicking together because I feel like I was doing inappropriate exercises that to help me in the type of muscular movements that you're talking about for my sport, jiu-jitsu. Uh, and like it just felt like I was not getting anywhere – strength wise and i think that might have been the reason why totally i mean the other the other thing that we got to look at uh something that you'll hear us i'm sure you guys have heard this from us but uh some of the the users might not have heard it or listeners rather um is this idea of progressive overload the stuff that we're doing in the weight room we want to incrementally provide a greater stress so that over time your performance is completely unrecognizable when you compare it to the day that you started, right? When we're look, when we when we leaf back through your old programs and you check out what you were doing that first month, you're like, whoa, man, I was, you know, I I was super weak compared to to where I'm at now. Sometimes another thing that we can look at um, is is how we're going to progress the movement. So like to, back to that shrimping example, I I hope that whoever would, you know, was in that video isn't listening because it sounds like I'm really attacking this guy. But I mean, <laughs> where, where do we go from there? Right. You know, you were talking about your bench press earlier. Okay. We're at, we're at 225 pounds. Well, what's the next logical step? Two trucks. Two third. I, two, <laughs> yeah. So, um, but, but yeah, we've got, we've got that next, uh, that next step to be able to incrementally improve that or increase our capacity. And on a lot of these things, we're left without that. And if, if we're left without that, let's take, for example, those band resisted punches. I mean, do you see guys taking eventually like these three inch thick bands and just punching? No, they're, they're usually going to stick to about the same band resistance. Maybe they'll go up slightly, but, but the actual progression isn't there. And our body is incredibly intelligent in, in terms of how it utilizes its resources and how it adapts. And what I want to draw attention to is that if our body is constantly introduced to the same exact stimulus, it will very quickly get to a point where it's no longer adapting. So then why are we doing this if we're no longer eliciting an adaptation, right? If I've already been punching through this red medium thickness band for the last three months, and that's the same thing I'm doing, okay, maybe I'm moving marginally faster, but but what is the long-term goal with this? Where, how do we progress that? I could give you, you know, if, if we wanted to sit down, Jake, and we wanted to map out your bench press over the next five years, we wouldn't be able to get too specific with it, but we could keep things within certain uh, phases or as, you know, people will call them uh, meso or macro cycles. And, and we can sort of plan out these goals in this long-term plan for your bench press, barring any sort of injuries or whatever else. Um, you can't really do that with a lot of these wacky, super specific exercises. Yeah, they've got this, they've got this visual appeal. You can get buy-in from your athletes because they go, well, shit, that looks like what I do when I'm in the cage. Okay, that's cool. You've got them bought in. But when I'm a strength coach talking to another strength coach, I mean, what's your long-term goal for that client? How are they ultimately going to progress? And when we're talking about something like strength, over the course of five, you know, let's look at five years. There is a lot you can do with somebody in five years in terms of strength. How can we put, you know, if somebody was paid to, uh, um, you know, if somebody was paid to hit a certain school, uh, in five years, the amount, the, the amount of, uh, weight that they can add to their squat in five years is astronomical. Can you do the same thing with a lot of these overly specific movements? 
I would argue no. So what's our long-term plan? Are we just going to progress to more and more specific movements until they come into the weight room just to spar? <laughs> you know, it, we, we can get lost there. So I think it's really important that we constantly look at progressive overload as well. And how are we going to incrementally and consistently improve the stresses placed on the body? I have an idea. Danny, do you know what I would do? I would take the bands, ditch the bands, right? We don't need the bands. I would take chains and I would hold on to the chains that that's working grip strength. And I would, att- I would attach them to two trucks behind me. I would punch the trucks forward. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what? After, after this episode, it's going to be like... <laughs> uh, I couldn't even get the joke out. Dang it. Jake Watson's new... Uh, <laughs> strength and conditioning plan and it's just got like a bunch of horribly photoshopped videos of you like punching, <laughs> punching dump trucks forward and, and doing like hip escapes like a cruise liner on a dock so electric performance pulling a truck through sand yeah Pull it, wow, progressions yeah, yeah. are endless that's so funny <laughs> yeah you have another question yeah so keeping with the uh the progressive overload theme um, so if someone were to run into like, uh, like a barrier where they couldn't do more weight, how would you progress that person? Like, would you use more reps or would you try to do like the same amount of weight in less time? Are those two things that you would incorporate, um, if someone's running into like a wall with the amount of weight that they're using? Yeah. Um, so there's progressive overload. The, the simplest way to look at it is, you know, adding weight over time. Um, but that is not the only way. Uh, to adhere to progressive overload. If I took somebody, let's say somebody was at a weight class and they wanted to be down 20 pounds and I got that person to lose 20 pounds, but they, they, they remained just as strong. That's progressive overload, right? If we're decreasing our body mass, but we're keeping our performance the same, um, that's, that's a pretty incredible thing. I mean, uh, you know, imagine if you could be two weight, you know, imagine just competing two weight classes lighter but being just as strong as you are now, that's a huge advantage. So there's a lot of ways we can go about that. Now, in the case where somebody's stuck in terms of their performance on a certain lift and they want to improve that, um, that's usually a pretty common issue. Uh, but what, uh, what, I'll, what I'll start to do from there is um, you know, really try to address it for that individual. Sometimes it can be a confidence thing. Um, I've found with uh, with exercises like a uh, squat or a bench press where you have the weights directly over you and there's there's sort of an element of uh, like fear for your well-being. Um, sometimes when you're dealing with a heavier weight than you've ever felt before or close to that and you unrack it, you kind of have this like, oh, crap moment where you realize that you've got, you know, 300 pounds over your face on a bench press and you're just like, damn. And that moment is not helpful for your performance, right? If you can, if you can eliminate that somehow, and there's ways that I, that I work on that with clients, um, that can even Im- improve performance and allow that to start chugging along. Now that's not always the case, right? Sometimes it's programming. Sometimes they're performing the movement too much and they're not giving them th- themselves adequate time to recover. Um, sometimes they're not changing the stimulus enough by adding maybe a pause at their sticking point, right? Maybe if they're always failing bench press at the same exact height, okay, well, uh, strength is joint angle specific. Let's start to spend more time at that joint angle where you're weakest. And all of a sudden, if we just clear up that weak link, all of a sudden we can start adding weight to the bar again. Um, so there's lots and lots of different strategies. You mentioned adding reps. That can be a good one too. Um, getting somebody more competent, you know, let's say they hit a milestone of 315 on an exercise. 
Um, and, you know, they're hesitant to go above it. Okay, well, our next goal, let's look for 315 for two and then for three. And, oh, what do you know? You're already getting 315 for four reps. I know that you can now get 325. Trust me, let's try it, right? And then, and then we try it, and what do you know? Now they're doing 325. Um, so there's a lot of different strategies, and I think it's important to assess exactly why you're not progressing. Because if you've got things, you know, I, I got into this in the last show. I haven't really uh, gotten into it today, but strength is by far the most trainable attribute of the human body. Um, if, you know, somebody, you know, somebody who already competes in jujitsu, like you do, Jake, if somebody tried to get you to, uh, you know, process oxygen, um, twice as efficiently, right. And just, and you just slammed conditioning, you know, high intensity interval stuff, uh, you know, steady state cardio, all of it, we wouldn't be able to attain that. But I mean, man, you're, you're young, you're early on in your career. If somebody said that they wanted you to be able to squat double what you do, you know, in five years, man, that is possible, right? You'd have to work really, really hard at it. And we'd have to do a lot of specificity for that goal, which could potentially detract from jujitsu and other things you're doing, but it's possible. So if we're stagnating, if, if somebody's plateauing, something that I like to, to use as a more empowering moment is the fact that, listen, in the vast majority of cases, you are not at your genetic ceiling, right? This isn't, this isn't the end of the road for you. Like, oh man, I just, I, I can only bench 225. I can't get above it. That's, that must be it for my genetics. No way, man. If we change some of those variables, you can keep that rate. And not, not, not to attack you, Jake. I know that you threw that out there as your, uh, as your one RM. That was, that was just a non-specific example. I'm offended. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's important to realize that we can tweak some of those variables and we can keep that progress going over the long term. Um, but it's important to really, truly assess what those variables are. What are the things holding you back? Is it your mentality? Is it that you're overly repetitive training? Is it your, uh, your training isn't consistent enough? Usually one of those variables will jump right out at us, and that's the one that we address. Okay. I actually have a question. I don't remember if we went over this, but this kind of goes into the, the big picture of like improving your strength. And a lot of it's diet. And we asked about diet before, but this is not a specific diet question. This is more of like taking a broad idea and a broad idea. What is your opinion on dirty bulking? Because a lot of people talk about it, right? Like, I'm not saying to do it all the time, but like, what if you eat healthy, like really healthy, good healthy, like 80% of the time and you dirty eat like 20% of the time and you're eating just, just packing food in. Like, um, I have like a... A very addictive personality. I talked about it a little bit on my Instagram earlier, and it's been a lot, a big source of like, you know, uh, depression in my life. But a lot of good addictions are like eating. I love eating, dude, and I always eat good. But sometimes, man, I want to just slam two extra large pizzas, like I do, and I, I can't hold back. So, is there a problem with that? <laughs> um. <laughs> this was started out as like a like a like a an informative question and turned out it sounded like therapy it's not yeah, it's no, actually what I'll is your opinion on dirty bulking okay so um it, real quick i wanted to answer before i say like what's the opinion on dirty bulking um when you were saying is that a problem when you were using your specific example of housing those two pizzas i can tell you with a ton of confidence that there isn't a problem with that um yeah I know. I just, I just, yeah. Um, now 
again, I mean, there are contexts where that contexts where that may not be great. Uh, it might not be ideal for you, right? If you know that you've got to make something where you're, you know, you, you've got a tournament coming up uh, where you've got to drop a couple pounds and you hit that within, you know, within a month of that tournament and, you, and that sets you back and then maybe you fight at, uh, you know, you have to do a more aggressive cut due to that. Okay, that was a context where you probably should not have done that. But like right now, when you don't have tournaments lined up and, you know, you just had a hard week of training, it's Friday, you're trying to just, you know, relax a little bit and you, yeah, and you want to house that pizza, dude. You can. Something that I think is a, is, is a big problem is that we tend to uh, really make things black and white when they're not. Um, you know, even what you were saying, oh, dirty versus clean eating. This is, a, this is an example I go over with my clients all the time. And it's very, very important that we analyze where we got these beliefs from. The only dirty food that we have is the, is the food we drop on the floor. That is dirty food. Okay. It I've had jujitsu athletes. I kid you not. There have been times where I train with a guy, you know, at Atos and he'll tell me, he'll be like, man, my cardio sucks. I ate poorly last night. And I'm like, dude, that's, that's not how this works. Right. Yeah. You might be having GI distress. You may have to run to the bathroom a bit. And, say, and, and I'm not saying that it's good to eat these uh, hyper palatable, um, what people might see as dirty foods uh, before a hard day of training. There are detriments, but it's not like your heart and lungs don't function as well because you ate a pizza that one time. Now, for the general public, if somebody has weight to lose, that all of a sudden changes the context significantly. A lot of these things that we see foods demonized for are not necessarily bad in a vacuum. What's bad are, are, is this cascade of metabolic conditions that come along with fast overconsumption and uh, underactivity for a long period of time where you start to accumulate that extra adipose tissue um, and you get to a point where systems of your body are really starting to struggle and suffer. But for somebody who, who is not experiencing those metabolic symptoms, we, we don't, there's no reason to demonize that Twinkie or that pizza if overwhelmingly um, you don't exhibit traits uh, like some of these people with these metabolic conditions. Um, and, and it's very important, man, it, it, all the time I've got, you know, I've got jujitsu athletes that will demonize this or that. And, and there may be ones that don't agree with your body. And again, I talk about GI distress and things like that. Like if you've got an indication that when you take in a large amount of cheese from, uh, from those pizzas and the next day, you are, man, you're, you're taking extra trips to the toilet, whatever it may be. Yeah, that might be an indication that for you, that's not a great thing to do, but there's no guarantee that that's going to happen to everybody who does that. So um, I don't, I'm not really a fan of categorizing food as clean or dirty. We've got a certain goal at hand, right? Like you were saying, bulking, right? If somebody wants to bulk and they, you know, they're not already uh, predisposed to any of those metabolic conditions. And they find a way for them to bulk is to take in some of those hyper palatable foods. Um, as long as they're getting in, uh, you know, their, their minimums for protein and stuff like that so they can recover. Um, and they're not experiencing things like GI distress and, and they feel relatively good. That can be okay. We can blur those lines a bit. It doesn't have to be this black or white thing where like, if it's not kale, then it's evil <laughs> um, is, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of an oversimplification of food, nutrition, and how that stuff works in our body. Another thing that I want to get to real quick on this subject is 
a logical fallacy known as an appeal to nature. This idea that if something is natural, it's somehow better for you by default than something that's synthetic. That's not true. What two things are we talking about? Let's look up research that isolates the variables or the compounds that we're talking about and actually tests to see if that thing is bad for you or not. There's plenty of things that are naturally occurring. Man, if you eat, uh, if you eat a cashew, there's, uh, there's little bits of cyanide in there, right? In a cashew. Now, how many cashews would you need to eat for that to be detrimental? I mean, more than you can fit in your body, but you extract that, that cyanide and you have somebody take in just that cyanide, yeah, they'll die. Um, but it's natural, right? So this whole idea that something, oh, it's natural, it's, it, it, it's far more complicated well, than that. And I understand it makes it easy for people, but this idea that just because something's synthetic or it has food coloring in it or, or the list goes on and on, I mean, there is extensive testing that's done. And if you want to dive into the research for that, um, it exists. Uh, and I think it's important that just because something has an organic stamp on it doesn't necessarily mean it's better for you. Um, a good friend of mine, Spencer Nadolsky, who is a, a, you know, a doctor with uh, Renaissance periodization, um, did a post a while back comparing Reese's cups to an organic brand uh, of peanut butter cups. Right. And the crazy thing is the Reese's cups um, ha were lower in calories. Um, uh, for for a lot of the individual things we're looking at, um, they were actually better for somebody to take in, particularly if that person's looking to lose weight and improve their health. Um, but and what he said is like, you know, unless you just like the organic one more, the fact that this says organic does not mean it's any healthier for you. In fact, for somebody who's struggling with weight loss and stuff like that, just based on the fact that it has more calories and can contribute to that metabolic cascade just because it's more energy coming in, um, that is not actually a healthier choice. If someone goes in and goes, oh, well, I want to get something for my kids. Ooh, the organic ones are going to be better. Or, you know, you've got these organic chips versus other chips. Well, if it's got more calories and stuff, I would argue that in a lot of contexts, it might not be healthier. So it's really important that we don't fall into these false dichotomies of the fact that there's all these foods out there and some are inherently good, some are inherently evil, and there's almost nothing in between. <laughs> you know, there's, um, it, it, you know, I, I could keep going down this road, but I, I think you get the idea. Um, it's, it's very, there's a lot of gray area. It's very context dependent. It depends on the individual, but no, I would not throw out dirty bulking as a, as a concept and say that it's always bad. There's definitely good applications for that. Oh man, I knew, I knew, oh, I had a feeling. I woke up this morning, prayed, and I had a feeling in my heart. I was like, Alex Turner is going to say something's going to change my life today. <laughs> Thank you. That was it. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, this pizza is going down, dude. I cannot wait. You kidding me? Yeah, well, here, actually, one, one last thing that I want to say on that. Um, sometimes people, you know, Jake, you might be able to, to uh, this might resonate with you a little bit. Um, both gaining or losing weight, depending on the individual, can be an equally arduous task. It can be very difficult for certain people to gain weight based on their lifestyle, um, you know, how they, uh, their, their hunger cravings, things like that. Um, now, I would never recommend it in this regard, but there are clients that I have that are, you know, the, the typical quote unquote hard gainers, right? The people that, oh man, my, 
my metabolism's just so fast that I can't put on weight. And that's, that's really not normally the case. It's not, it's not the fault of your metabolism. It's just the fact that you're wired to feel sated and full a bit earlier than other people, right? And other people might continue to indulge while you decide, yeah, you know what? I've had enough. And, and it's, it's multifactorial. There's plenty of reasons, but um, something that I'll do with those clients, if they really have a goal to gain weight. Um, oftentimes I find that they have these very, very self-limiting beliefs in terms of food, sort of like what we were getting at before that they think that if they have, you know, they have that one pizza, oh my God, I'm clogging my arteries. This is just, when I eat this pizza, it's taking years off my life. And it's like, it's not that simple. And if we're looking at the individual who just can't gain weight and they're probably a little bit underweight, we've got to work to break that down and get that person to, uh, to really take in more energy, um, and, and do so in a manner where they can actually start to bulk up a bit. And there's this article, I urge you guys to, uh, to look it up later. It's intense, right? Uh, but if you Google Dave Tate gaining weight, um, he talks about an old story from the West side gym, uh, that he was at where, uh, a guy explained what he did to be able to pack on. Now we're talking about top of the line power lifters, right? So this is going to be very extreme, but what I'll often do is I'll read this story. Cause it's funny too. Um, I'll read this to that client and we'll sit there and we'll laugh about it. And I'm like, look, this is really extreme. This isn't what I'm telling you to do, but I want you to know that this idea that this construct that we have, um, that, you know, you eat this one thing that's not quote unquote clean and it's just instantly taking years off your life. That's just not how this works. Oftentimes when we see stuff like that, it's due to the, the, the entire picture. It's not the one Twinkie that person ate. It's the, it's, it's the consistent overconsumption and underactivity and all of these other things that go into it that then that person eating a Twinkie, yeah, that's taking years off their life, but it's not a guarantee that every single person that eats that Twinkie has the same context and it will have the same effect on. So it's important that we, that we look at it as a, a, you know, a lot more gray area than that. Yeah. I'm looking at it. It says my old routine was McDonald's on the way to the gym, coffee during my workout, Burger King and Copenhagen post-workout. This man was the picture of health. <laughs> oh man. No. So you're not even reading the, uh, the, the, the article of it. So, uh, he, uh, it, it should be a T Nation article where you'd have to scroll down to. I think it's like stories with Dave Tate. Uh, I think I read. Like, no, what, did he eat a lot of Oreos? I think I remember reading it, like a whole Oreos. box so, like, of them or something. So basically, he brings it up to this guy at the West Side Gym who, uh, uh, you know, who's very, uh, very good at gaining weight. And he's like, dude, what's your secret? How do you do it? And the guy goes, step outside. And um, and he's like, well, that's just strange because, you know, at Westside, the, the amount of things that you can't say in the gym, he's like, what's this guy about to tell me? And this guy gives him instructions, uh, like crazy instructions. One of them is like getting these, uh, you know, getting uh, breakfast sandwiches at McDonald's um, and loading up each side of the bread with a ton of mayo and forcing those guys down, um, it, it getting a. Uh, <laughs> getting a, ordering a ton of Chinese food and making sure that it was none of that quote, no MSG bullshit, um, and forcing <laughs> yourself down, uh, order, ordering a large pizza, putting, putting a half a liter of olive oil on oh top of it. God. And before sitting there and digging in, he talks about sitting there and staring at that thing and knowing that that's the one thing sitting between you and your dreams. And no matter how hard it is, you're going to force it down. You're going to sit there till you finish that pizza. Now, Again, I mean, that's extreme. 
that's that's really far down that end. But I, I like to throw that out there to show um, that sometimes gaining weight is going to be difficult. And if we take a jujitsu athlete, somebody who's spending a lot of time training already, and if that person wants to say move up a weight class, I mean, it's going to take work, just like it takes work to take weight off, right? If somebody's got these lifestyle traits that's that's promoting a heavier body weight and all of a sudden they're looking to make a change and lose weight that's going to take work and and the reverse is true as well um so essentially i think there's you know context is important it's not something that i would throw around to everybody um but there are these dirty bulk type strategies that can be very effective in a context where that person is looking to gain some weight that's yeah it's it's like half inspiring Half conf- or a third inspiring, a third confusing, and a third just kind of scary that this guy like I'm I'm on T Nation and it says diet fat law or it's from Dave Tate and I'm reading different articles about all the stuff he used to eat. This guy's eating stuff they- that I ate when I was a kid, just in grand qual- quantities. Like this is like children's food, but he's just eating a lot of it. Yeah, no, it's insane. Uh, is is that the numbered list on T Nation? Where there's like different, it's like stories with Dave Tate. Uh, I saw one that says 37 tips and tales from Dave Tate. Yes. And go down to number. It's like, it's one of the last ones. And then it's the exact story I'm telling you about. Oh, here's it, a I quick mean, story. There was a time at the old West Side yeah. gym where I couldn't gain weight to save my life. Oh, dear. Should yeah. I read this? I, <laughs> I mean, it's intense. One. It's intense, but go for it. <clears throat> it's just part of it. There was this dude who trained there who could put on weight. Like effing magic. He'd go from 198 to 308 and then to 2075 and back down to 198 and he was never fat. It was amazing. Go on a little bit more. For breakfast, you need to eat four of those breakfast sandwiches for McDonald's. I don't care which ones you get, but make sure to get four. Order four hash browns too. Now grab two packs of mayonnaise and put them on the hash browns and slip them into the sandwiches. Squish that ish down and eat. That's your breakfast. For lunch, you're going to get Chinese food. Now, I don't want you eating that crappy stuff. You want to get the stuff with MSG. None of that non-MSG BS. I don't care what you eat, but you have to sit down and eat that for at least 45 minutes straight. You can't let go of the fork. Eat until your eyes swell up and become slits and you start to look like the woman behind the counter. (laughs) For dinner, you're going to order an extra large pizza with everything on it. Literally everything. If you don't like sardines, don't put them on. But anything else that you like... You have to load it on there. After you pay the delivery guy, I want you to take the pie to your coffee table, open that effer up, and grab a bottle of oil. It could be olive oil, canola oil, whatever, anything but motor oil. And I want I want to pour that stuff all over the pie until half the bottle is gone. Just soak it. <laughs> now, before you lay into it, I want you to sit on your couch and stare at it. I want you to understand that that pizza right there is keeping you from your goals. <laughs> Yeah. So, so essentially, uh, you know, very extreme, right? I'm not, I am not in any way endorsing that that is the way for everybody to gain weight. But I think it's important that when somebody has, you know, they've gotten into a habit of living their life a certain way, be it with a heavier uh, body weight than they would want or a lighter one, it's going to take a lot of effort to uh, elicit that change. I mean, myself, um, I don't know, I don't know what you looked like growing up, Jake, but man, I was, I was super skinny in uh, middle school, high school, well, beginning of high school, towards the end, I really started to pack it on. And I had this like self-defeating mentality of like, ah, yeah, you know, like my metabolism is too fast. I just can't gain weight. Ha ha. And like that, that's not it. You know, uh, you can, you just have to work really, really hard at it. Um, so yeah, bringing it back to your question. Yeah. Sometimes we do use a little bit of a, of a dirty book mentality, but 
Um, I will also say I've never given anything anywhere near that level of what Dave Tate was talking about in that article. You definitely hit the nail on the head. I well, I, I feel like uh, up until about 18 years old, I looked like I had escaped Auschwitz, um, which is not yeah. like that's not meant to disparage anybody. But like, that's exactly what it felt like. I was very, very skinny. Uh, I don't know if I told you this when I was 14 years old, I was a hundred and ah, man, 14. I might've been 125 pounds and I was like five ten, five eleven, and I couldn't bench the bar off my chest. I, I couldn't do it. I, I pulled my, I pulled my groin doing a body weight lunge and I just, I couldn't, I couldn't gain weight. And I do have this self-defeating mentality of like, man, my metabolism's too fast. But I never, you know, like, like I'm not going to do this either. But seeing it is definitely inspiring me. It's stirring up some emotions in me right now because it's like for the longest time, I just kind of was like, ah, I'm not going to gain weight until I'm older. But like, I, I know I can. I just have to switch it up a little bit. I have to do things a little differently. Um, man, man yeah. as soon as they, uh, as soon as they invent a, you know, like a time machine, we got to go back to when we were both 14 um, and just have like the skinniest super fight known to man. Dude, I was, uh, you know, when I was a freshman in high school. Yeah, I was, I was five ten, five eleven. I wrestled at one nineteen and one twenty five. My my sophomore year was ridiculous, man. I was uh, I was like six one, six two at that point, and I wrestled at one thirty five. That was the spot open for me on the team. Um, and I barely even had to drop weight to get there. I kid you not. You look at my old high school wrestling pictures. And like, or, or like some of the, some of the video footage and you're like, oh man, the resolution's off. And then you see my opponent and they look like normally just like, you know, with like a normal body composition. You're like, wow, wait, it's not the camera. That dude's just slender man. You know, yeah. <laughs> I was a green belt back then though. So you have to understand I was, I, I had already been competing in golden gloves and Muay Thai and I was a green belt in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. So that, sorry, so brother. maybe. Let's go back to 12. 12 is better. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Just kidding. No, but I, I, I feel you. Danny, how are uh, – see, Danny, uh, I imagine because Danny is 31 and he looks like he's 18, he probably was like a toddler <laughs> running around in high school. But was it kind my of the same for you? Said, my license, right, right when I turned 16, it said 53105. So I didn't start putting on weight until college. I was super, didn't know Alex super Stern, small, didn't but I was also Alex not Stern. tall like you guys. <laughs> I was really, really short. I had just a gigantic head, dude. It was like it was like my head was too big to support my weight, so I walked all funny, and I just I had like I I ate a lot of food, but it was I just couldn't you know I didn't eat enough food and provide enough stimulus in my young age because I wasn't smart enough to. I had a Jim Beal was the strength coach in my high school, and he passed away uh, within the last few years due to uh, the fight with cancer. But he was the most old school style. Like the dude was like 70 years old, and he was just it, it, squatting. Is like you have to go this low, and he didn't care about technique. He's like your your ass has to touch that box every squat, and if it doesn't <laughs> touch that box every squat, it doesn't count. And I'm over here like struggling with the bar. I cannot bend my knees. And it's just like, dude, I'm so scared. He didn't care if you were scared. And it was just the weirdest training environment compared to now where you actually care about what your client is feeling and the response that they're giving you. But <laughs> back then, it's just like, yeah. you're a freshman. It's like, hey, welcome to A hour, bitch. It's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's confusing too. And I, I think there's an element too, like the ages we're talking about, like, you know, I know I was growing so quickly each year. Like, yeah, I mean, at that point, 
I was eating a ton of food because my body was increasing inside. It was just growing vertically, not, you know, not putting any substantial size on. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's pretty wild. Um, you know, how difficult it can be to gain weight, especially once you get into habits and practices that, that have you hanging out at a certain point. Yeah. I can't wait. I want to be at my goal. I want, I want to get up to about 205 pounds. I, I think fighting at, uh, medium heavyweight or heavyweight and like dancing around 202, 203 is like my goal. That's what I think would be ideal for me as a competitor. What's your uh, height and weight right now? Uh, 187 and I'm 6'3". Six, 6'3 three. Six, three and a half. Okay. I'm going to say the half because I was 6'4 at one point. I know it. <laughs> Something happened. Okay. I mean, for your, for your size frame, that is, that's definitely possible, you know, and we don't have to rush it. You don't have to uh, follow Dave Tate's advice and get there in two weeks. You know, um, you could, uh, you, you, we could take our time with that and make sure that the majority of the weight that you put on is muscle, you know, that you're, uh, that you're adjusting to your frame as well. And I think there's an element, especially in combat sports where you gain weight too fast, especially muscle mass. Um, you're like, you know, you're stronger, you're capable of more, and you haven't really caught your conditioning up to that point. You can name countless fighters in the UFC that have bumped up a weight class and, you know, it takes some time for them to adjust. So something that I am big on while, uh, while it does take consistent effort for a lot of jujitsu competitors to put weight on, take your time with it and give your body time to adjust, uh, you know, to this new weight so that you don't just rush your way up there dive into your first tournament and gas out really quick you know okay yeah sure. thank you thank you what about creatine what's your opinion on that um i mean it's very well researched um it's it's one of the most uh you know well-researched supplements that's out there um and in a lot of applications it makes a ton of sense um you know, we've got three energy systems for our body, uh, the first of which is the creatine phosphate system. And any short duration or explosive activity is going to weigh very heavily on that energy system. So anytime you're doing repeat bouts of very intense uh, exercise, having extra creatine can allow you to maintain a high level of performance for those repeat bouts. Think of strength training. You do a hard set, lasts, you know, what, 15 seconds. You wait a couple minutes, you do it again right? It's a great application for it. If we look at the effect that that would have on somebody performing jujitsu, okay, so you've got a little bit of an extra burst in the first few seconds, and we're not really giving ourselves enough time to replenish that energy system. Jiu-jitsu is far more glycolytic um, and aerobic, uh, you know, the other two energy systems. Um, it, it weighs much more heavily on those energy systems than it does the creatine phosphate one. So, uh, I think there is a very limited benefit to jujitsu athletes. Um, and the fact that it also will usually come along with a little bit of extra water retention in a weight class based sport, it's not always the best context. Now, if it was a, you know, like you said, right now you're not competing a ton. So weight's not a huge concern. Um, I don't think it's going to be a detriment to your performance on the mats. Um, and if it allows you to have more, uh, you know, more consistent or high effort strength training sessions, then that could be a good application for you. I, I almost never, um, recommend, uh, creatine to my jujitsu athletes, but, um, I also won't dissuade them from it if it seems like it's a good, um, you know, a good time for them to jump on that. Thank you. All right. That answers my question completely.
So we want to, I have a few more questions written down, but we want to be uh, respectful of your time. So do you think we should save those for, for another Q&A episode coming up? Um, let's or do you have time for some more? Uh, yeah, I got, I got like another 15 minutes. Okay, cool. So the next one then is about flexibility versus mobility. And I think you touched on this in the first episode about how you like to use like certain movements and full range of motion to kind of build mobility if someone lacks in, uh, in that area. So are there specific movements that you like to do for jujitsu athletes? Um, if they're like lacking in specific ranges of motion that are really helpful for the sport? Yeah. So, um, you know, we, we got into it a little bit and it, it, again, it may seem a little bit, uh, pedantic, but we really like to draw that line, um, between mobility and flexibility, right? Mobility is going to be a lot more active. You're going to be able to actively bring that joint through a particular range of motion, whereas flexibility tends to be far more passive, right? Maybe you're, uh, pulling on that straight leg in that hamstring stretch and just seeing how far you can passively bring that joint. Um, we find that mobility is far more useful and quite frankly, flexibility can be used against you um, in that passive sense, right? If I'm trying to stack somebody and get their, uh, you know, their legs pressed up to their head, if they can passively be brought to that range of motion, I can take advantage of that. Now, mobility, um, you could think about somebody retaining guard and their leg pummeling back in. Sometimes you got these super flexible guys where their leg will pummel in from the craziest angle. Like you think that you're past, you're passing the north, south, and then that leg comes out of nowhere. And it's not like they're grabbing it with their hand and passively putting it there. Obviously, you know, people will do things like that sometimes. But when it's really dangerous and particularly effective is when they have the mobility to bring those lower body joints through that range of motion themselves. So um, with that being said, I think that uh, something like static stretching um, is, is very overutilized in jujitsu, right? If you look at the, the way that you're training static stretching, um, that it tends to be passive in nature. So what we like to do, especially as it comes to the lower body, because oftentimes when people are talking about being mobile or flexible in jujitsu, uh, the regions that, that really like, if, if you're like, wow, someone's flexible, um, it, it's not normally, uh, it, it's going to normally come from the hips. Um, and even some low back uh, ranges of motion that can that can give you a false uh, sense of range of motion from the hips. And case in point, I mean, if you're in north south and you want to prevent somebody from inverting, what do you do? You use your head to push their hips to the mat. So they can't use their lower back uh, to 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 really enhance that hip flexibility. So as we're doing exercises, there's there's certain lower body exercises where we really try to uh, um, try to focus on that active range of motion. So if we take something like a, a Bulgarian split squat, which is already a, a decent exercise for range of motion in the low body, you add a deficit to it and really have them sink that back leg further. Uh, and you look at the joint angles on that lead leg, the one that they're targeting, you know, you'll see some deep hip and knee flexion. And you're not just bringing that person to deep uh, knee and hip flexion, but you're getting them strong throughout that entire portion of the range of motion. And that's the thing that I really want to circle back to is that it's not just about having this new range of motion and being passive there. It's about being strong and stable across the entire range of motion that you have. So I wish there was some sort of 
magical exercise that we do where, you know, we do it with somebody a couple of times and then their hips open up and they turn into, you know, uh, you know, brown belt Keenan, where his legs were just coming in from everywhere. But that's that's just not how it works. We just try to train uh, a lot of these fundamental movements, sometimes using cool uh, uh, variations like deficits, um, where we can bring the body through a considerable range of motion, but we get it strong through that whole range of motion as well. Um, because another another contributing factor to injury far more often than just a lack of flexibility or range of motion. Um, we'll see a contributing factor for, uh, for injury be, uh, your strength sloping off considerably at a particular portion of the range of motion. If at, uh, you know, the end point for, uh, you know, for flexion of a joint, you, you, you become considerably weaker. That can be an area where you're really predisposed to injury. So we want to train and load uh, that movement through the greatest range of motion possible. And that's going to look different from person to person. It could even and should improve over time as they get more comfortable with it, as they, as they train it more consistently. Um, and that's, that's the goal that, uh, that we look to accomplish. Awesome. All right. So I have one, one more question. Do you have any more, Jake? I just have one. More I don't know. The, okay. the thing is Danny, for some reason. Okay. I have more followers than Danny. But Danny's follower base is love like way better at answering questions <laughs> on the question box thing. So Danny got like a Are bunch of questions. I got three, and two of them were not even real questions. So I wasn't. I, I did my best, guys. Are you using those uh, those Russian services to like uh, to get more followers and stuff? Is that what it is? <laughs> <You got> the- <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh my! Oh, we're done. You and I. I am upset with that comment. Never. Never. Come on, man. I worked hard. I've had Instagram since like 2012. Right, I've, I, well, I have 4,000 something. Yeah, you guys. I mean, you threw questions up on your story. Danny got answers. You didn't. I'm just. I'm just trying to come up with potential solutions here. How dare you? <laughs> that was. I cannot believe that. All right. So <laughs> the last one is a question about uh, high intensity interval training. I know we kind of touched on this in the last episode about like cardio and stuff, but are there any specific instances where you incorporate like running or high intensity interval training? Maybe if someone's like trying to drop a weight class, is that something that you would, would use in that circumstance? Um, well, uh, the, the quicker side of this, if someone's trying to drop uh, to, to get uh, you know, down in weight, the first thing I want to address is diet. I don't want to just add more activity, particularly with a jujitsu competitor, because that person has a ton of activity already. We want to touch up their diet, modify that in a, in a way that makes sense so that they can make that new weight. Um, now in terms of, we, we do absolutely, um, uh, you know, do conditioning with our athletes. Um, but, uh, again, it's context specific. So right now we actually are doing a hell of a lot more conditioning um, than we've been doing with our athletes, both in person and online. A lot of people have reduced mat time and their activity level overall has gone down a bit so they can handle a bit more. What you see a lot with like high end jujitsu competitors is, man, they're, they're already getting sparring sessions for jujitsu two, sometimes three times a day. Does that person need to then come in and hit a circuit with battle ropes and a bunch of med ball movements? And you know, that that's just overload for that person at that point in time, right? What we want to do is we want to give them a stimulus that they don't get in jujitsu. We'll work primarily strength with that individual um, because they're getting adequate conditioning elsewhere. But again, 
right now, a lot of people are in a context where it does make sense. So um, both with our in-person and online clients, we've been doing a lot more. And while steady state cardio or like, you know, uh, you know, that longer duration, uh, lower intensity cardio that you see people do, while that's not a bad thing, um, we do usually try to stick to sport specific uh, work to rest intervals where you're working much, much more, uh, harder for a shorter period of time. And then you're resting for a bit. And if you watch the, uh, you, you know, you watch a, a jujitsu fight, it's usually taking a, a similar pace, right? You've got to scramble for a couple of seconds or somebody's transitioning to a new position and then it stabilizes and slows down, right? You got the person, you know, they get, they get to side control, they, they control the position, you know, you'll see them look up at the clock or they'll look over at their coach. They're, you know, they're chilling for a sec. So we, we, we really like those, uh, the specific intervals, um, that will translate best now running. Um, you know, there's some coaches out there that will completely demonize running. Um, I don't think it's worthy of being demonized, but what I will say is that if it's a novel stimulus for the person, it can be pretty detrimental. And what I mean by that, if that person is not a runner, they haven't run for a while, um, and you just start sending them out on runs sometimes multiple times a week, that person's going to be pretty torn up. Um, the, you know, the, the muscles of their lower body aren't used to that. They're going to be taking a lot of impact and that can negatively impact what they do in terms of, uh, uh, you know, jujitsu or even their strength training. So I, I tend to keep that, uh, reserved for individuals who are habitual runners anyways. Maybe they started running at a certain point in their life and they still run a couple times a week and they want me to structure it in such a way that it applies to jujitsu. Great. But I'm not just going to take somebody who hasn't been running and give them a ton of road work. I don't think that's a recipe for success. Okay. Awesome. So Danny, do you have any further questions? That is it. You know what's funny is I'm going to be listening to this podcast later today, just try, just cycling through all the information you just gave me. Um, I guess that means that we are uh, due for another Open Guardcast electric performance ad. In a world where many people don't understand how to lift, how to run, how to take care of their body, well, we have the answer. Open Guardcast 25 is the discount code that you can use and get Alex Sterner's. We've never seen his face before on this show, but maybe you will if you're lucky. <laughs> Open Guardcast 25 is the discount code. Get thick, get mean, get lean, get swole today. Look at that. You see that? Dude, I want a sound bite of that. That was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of changed the no voice, idea man, how it hurts, but it was so you great. have no idea how much that hurts my voice. Dude. <laughs> That's like a, that, that takes a lot. But, uh, dude, Alex, thank you so much, man. Uh, you guys, I mean, everybody here should know by now to follow Electrum Performance on Instagram at Electrum underscore performance. You can follow Alex Sterner at Alex.Sterner, right? Am I right? Yep, Sick. and and we'll even take some of those uh some of those Russian bot accounts as well. <laughs> yeah, I hate send you for that. Why did you do that again? You did that again. <laughs> I, I specifically asked you not to make that joke again, and you did anyway. It's a great joke. It's not a funny joke. <laughs> Whatever, I'm upset. Anyway, you can follow Alex at those things, or uh, if you're a Russian, you want to uh, be a fake guy, then do it. Um, no, that's number one bullshit for sure. But uh, <laughs> Jake Watson official, 
DannyOD424. That's our Instagrams, but we're not going to promote those because you guys should follow Open Guardcast instead. Also, we want to thank High Tier Photography, Chill Fit Cryo, Agro Brand, Martial Andre Jiu-Jitsu, Marikawa BJJ, and Break New Ground. And we want to shout out Autos Jiu-Jitsu and all the great fighters down there. We hope you guys are doing awesome uh, during the quarantine. We love you. Uh, and we're so excited for everything that's going to be going on with Alex Sterner and um, and Electric Performance. And say hi to Alex Bryce for us, please, because we had him on the show. And he was also a f- another like lecture-worthy episode. We loved it. Nice. Will do. Thank you, guys. Thank you, man. We will yes. – uh, I'm well, not going to – dirty today <laughs> i was gonna say hopefully we can have you on for another one of these this was this was a lot of fun i, I know jake didn't get as many uh, responses from the russian bots but i got quite a few so i'm sure there's gonna be <laughs> there's gonna be more questions that come in especially after people listen to this so if, if you ever want to come on for another one of these that'd be awesome i, w- I would love to guys thank you awesome yeah you're welcome <laughs> right, Danny, take us out of here dick <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening this is episode 38 of the open guard cast with alex sterner of electrum performance and we'll see you guys soon